From jet engines to space rockets, telephones to computers, the world has seen spectacular change in the last hundred years, and the pace of progress is getting faster and faster. From electric cars to the metaverse, drone deliveries to climate solutions and genetic sequencing, we're investing in the companies that are not just changing the world today, but are also shaping the future. The Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, managed by Bailey Gifford. Invest in progress. Capital at risk. My name is Christopher Johnson, reporter for CityY Wealth Manager. I'm here today with CityY AAA-rated James Johnston of Redwill, who is the co-head of the Emerging and Frontier Markets team at the Asset Manager. You are the co-head of Redwill's Global Emerging Market team and the Redwill Global Emerging Market Fund returned 21.4% over the last three years, while the MSCI Emerging Markets Index delivered over 1%. So what has been the key to the fund's success? So it's been a difficult 10-year period, but we've had some good returns in alpha uh, and in absolute returns emerging markets is still up over the last 10 years. It's really the relative performance that's been difficult. But specifically for the last three years, where we've got it right, was we were quite good at reducing our exposure to the, the more tourism, the more uh, exposed elements to COVID. So as the world shut down pretty aggressively in the early parts of 2020, we made a big decision to move much more into the work from home parts of the economy. So specifically North Asia with its very technology focused um, around the semiconductor space. So TSMC has obviously been an incredibly good performer over that period. And at times, part of the semiconductor space in Korea, led by Samsung and Hynix, has done very well. And at the same time, obviously, the Chinese internet names performed incredibly well. E-commerce did very well, while the Chinese population were locked up under zero COVID. So we had a very good position in some of the technology world. And then we were fortunate to rotate into the real world aspects of emerging markets in late 2020, just before you had the, the real moves by the regulatory aspect of the Chinese government in more of the headwinds that appeared for some of this, particularly the internet sector, the education sector. So we'd rotated much more into the commodity space. We're a little unusual in that we've um, got a lot of experience. We've, I've been investing in emerging markets for 25 years, John for, for nearly 30 years. So we've got the experience of when commodities made a really big difference on the emerging market complex. Uh, we're very strong believers in the long cycle that's approaching. Um, and to that extent, we did rotate quite quickly into the commodity sector on the advent of the, um, of the COVID vaccine in late 2020, and then obviously continued to invest in commodity sectors as the, the headwinds in the Chinese economy and the Chinese regulatory space picked up. So in your view, are we entering a commodity super cycle? Well, I think you know, the advent of the, the last super cycle that started really in 2002 was the advent of China entering the global economy. And if you look back with the benefit of hindsight, uh, China brought 700 million people out of its agrarian um, economy and into a more urbanized existence. Now, the demand side of the commodity picture today looks a little bit more complicated. China has urbanized. You've had a very big um, shift in the dramatic usage of commodities by China. China is the number one user of most commodities globally. Cement, copper, mm. um, oil, you know, it's a very big consumer. And so the likelihood of you seeing a, 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 a very significant dramatic increase or change in Chinese consumption and demand is unlikely. But we do think on a cyclical basis, as we talked about a bit earlier, you know, China now needs to, to, to add stimulus to its economy. China needs to get economic growth back up, having had two very difficult years of zero COVID. So we do see on the demand side from China and emerging markets being strong. Now, historically, commodity demand growth is very linked to global GDP, which, as we know, is not great. But the big difference for this cycle is the electrification of the world, the green wave, the shift that the world has to make to fit net zero 2050, you know, the very dramatic need for the world to combat uh, climate change. So we think demand looks strong. 
uh, if you put it in the context of copper, the world could easily need 40 million tonnes of copper a year. Now, the sad fact is we use, only produce 20 million tonnes a year. So there's a very dramatic increase that we need in supply. So we like the demand profile. We like the wave of electrification. We think that the world, as we've seen with the, the, the IRA Act out of the US, you know, the, the US is committing to several trillion dollars to combat uh, you know, green climate change. That's going to happen in the world over. So demand looks good. But it's that 40 million of copper demand versus 20 million of copper supply where we think the real super cycle has the ability to manifest itself. Now, last year, when asked about your investments in China and India um, for an interview with Citibank Wealth Manager, you said that you backed China over India. Um, clearly, this view still stands today. Yes, so we, are, we remain overweight China uh, and we remain underweight India um, from a kind of a, 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 a portfolio construction perspective. India undoubtedly is one of the most exciting stock markets on the planet mm -hmm. uh, and one of the most exciting economies. But our view is very much that a lot of it's being priced in in the short term. So there's a lot of consolidation, we think. So we spend a lot of time looking at the long-term macro indicators. And amazingly, Indian market cap to GDP went from 20% uh, in the late 90s to over 130% in the late 2022. So that's a very expensive stock market. The reverse, obviously, is true for China. China has had some exciting... Uh, stock market periods of return over the last 20 years. Um, but really since Q1 2021, President Xi's regulatory changes, especially around the internet and education, caused a big derating of the stock market. So you had some of the very strong internet giants, the Tencents, the Alibabas, really derate over that 18-month period. You know, China was down 20% in that three-year period from the end of 19 to the end of 22. So you're now faced with a decision where China, in effect, trades on around 10 times earnings mm -hmm. against India trading on 21, 22, 23 times earnings. So there's a very big difference in valuation. Now, as I say, we like India from a long-term perspective, but in the short term, we think that as China reopens, as we think that China exits zero COVID, and most importantly, as President Xi really is faced with the, 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 the need to get Chinese GDP growth working to get Chinese regulatory um, headwinds reduced uh, and to encourage the economy and obviously the stock market to respond to that, we think that there is a very good 12 to 18 month opportunity for China to, to re-rate back towards its traditional levels of maybe 13, 14, 15 times. In your next generation emerging markets fund that you personally run, um, according to Morningstar, Peru-based Hotchild Mining is your top holding at almost 3%. But are you concerned about the deepening political paralysis in Peru and how the push to close mines will impact the business? Hotchild actually is a great company. It's no longer our biggest holding. Okay. But I think one of the main reasons is exactly as you point out, the political situation in Peru has been very difficult from a jurisdictional basis. Peru is on its seventh president in six years. Uh, getting permitting for material expansion is going to be has been proven to be difficult, and that really underpins what we're talking about on that, especially on copper supply. You know, Peru and Chile, 35% global copper supply. Chile also faces very difficult political restrictions at the moment. So, the the backdrop from politics is going to be incredibly important. Yeah. Um, there is going to be a, a, a grab for, for resource tax. We know that the world has, has spent too much money over the last five years, really, uh, and especially accentuated by the effects of COVID. Um, and so tax take, resource nationalism, is going to be a, a really important part of the future. Uh, no one's going to want to commit to billions of dollars of capex in a jurisdiction where you're not guaranteed the returns that you thought you were getting when you signed the contract. So it, it's difficult, but again, that's what really underpins our very positive focus on su supply. In, in effect, limited supply leads to higher prices. 
I wanted to get your opinion on Africa. So it is the youngest population worldwide. Do you think the continent could be the next economic superstar? Africa has to be an incredibly exciting opportunity. Morocco will make more cars this year than many parts of Europe. Um, Egypt is an incredibly exciting long-term opportunity with some long-term uh, gas field discoveries, which is reducing the, the dependence on, uh, on hydrocarbons, which has been a big problem for parts of Africa. And many parts of the eastern seaboard, so Kenya, um, Tanzania, huge amounts of, of, of population resource. Um, and with the demographics still very much in their favor, the working age population, we would expect there to be inroads of FDI coming through to take advantage of this lower cost of labor. But at the same time, that spurs incredible development at the economic level as you bring through consumption and as you add uh, disposable income into wages. So much as we've seen, as I say, across history, you would anticipate that FDI begins to move to Africa. Now, the other aspect of, of Africa, not just going to be the new factory of the world, tourism. We've all been locked up at home. We're all pretty desperate to go on holiday. You've got a huge opportunity set across Africa for tourism. Uh, and particularly for kind of ecotourism, as the world continues to have a very strong uh, view on biodiversity and the protection of the world's um, climate. So I think that's going to be an incredibly important source of revenue for Africa going forward. Uh, and also commodities. We talked about the super cycle. You know, ultimately, Africa is one of the most geared continents to resources. I wanted to return to the Next Generation Emerging Markets Fund that you run. It delivered a 91% return rate over the last three years, while the MSCI Frontier Market Index is down 1.9%. So what's been the secret to um, this outperformance and how repeatable are those successful calls? We see the next generation um, really as taking over um, the, the success of emerging markets that we've seen really for the last 30, 40 years. Um, if you think that, that emerging markets in, call it 1989, at the end of the, of the Cold War, solved the big issue of the day, which was a lack of cheap labor, cheap energy, and cheap goods. So if you think about the rise that we've just talked about, the rise of China, the rise of, of Southeast Asia, a huge amount of what they contributed to the global economy was bringing two billion people into the global labor force and driving disinflation through the system, which has led the, the whole world to enjoy this incredibly low period of inflation and, and, and the decline in manufactured goods. Now, as we've discussed, China's coming to the end of that particular secular period of its history. China's having a, a declining demographic. The world now needs to solve that equation again. The Russia-Ukraine conflict is interesting in that it's exacerbated all of the issues that were prevalent anyway, the lack of, uh, of commodities, the lack of, uh, of cheap labor force and cheap goods, as have been highlighted by the rise of, uh, of Chinese inflation, Chinese worker prices. So the Russia-Ukraine situation is incredibly sad and tragic um, from a, a, a population and, and a humanitarian perspective, has really served to accentuate the, the risks that are faced by the world, which is huge inflationary forces. So to solve for cheap goods, cheap labor, cheap energy again, Really, we think that the world has to turn to the next generation as much as it turned to the emerging markets in the late 80s and into the 90s. So the three things we've talked about, commodities, uh, tourism, and a next generation of, of factories, in effect, are really going to be solved, we think, by the next generation of emerging markets. So we talked about Vietnam, which has been an incredibly important second source of supply alongside China. Uh, Indonesia has a huge importance in the nickel uh, industry, given the, the, the importance of, of nickel for, for batteries, for electric vehicles. Um, and so we, in many ways, we see that you know, the great success of emerging markets has led to this dominance of China, Korea, Taiwan, and India, really in, in the stock markets. 
uh, they represent now nearly three quarters of the emerging market index, which means that you've got nearly 40 or 50 other countries almost forgotten by uh, the, the index. Um, and we think that's an oversight. We think that those countries represent incredibly exciting long-term opportunities. From jet engines to space rockets, telephones to computers, the world has seen spectacular change in the last hundred years, and the pace of progress is getting faster and faster. From electric cars to the metaverse, drone deliveries to climate solutions and genetic sequencing, we're investing in the companies that are not just changing the world today, but are also shaping the future. The Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, managed by Bailey Gifford. Invest in progress. Capital at risk.